0: I'm your host, Tally Goth, Assistant Professor of Literary Theory and Cultural History at Cornell University. Born in London and based in New York City, my research negotiates what it means for me to be a Black woman from the United Kingdom and the haunted legacies of other Atlantic crossings. I explore these questions as a writer, curator, and a DJ, specializing in the narratives that emerge from histories of race, debt, and technology. My research is rooted in literatures and theories of labor that center black feminist engagements with indigeneity and Asian diasporic racial formations. Much of my art and sign design practice explores what it means for me to be of Afro-Asian heritage. Committed to forming intellectual communities beyond institutions, I am the founder of The Dark Laboratory, an engine for the study of race, technology, and ecology through digital storytelling, including virtual reality and DJing.
1: And I'm Shannon Gleason, a sociologist and professor of labor relations law and history at the Cornell ILR School. I also co-direct the Migrations Initiative here at Cornell and I'm an affiliate of the Latina Latino Studies program in Brooks School of Public Policy. My research sits at the intersection of labor and migration studies, draws on both qualitative and quantitative research methods and is inherently comparative and transnational. My work is interested in how low-wage workers mobilize their rights, the importance of state actors in driving and sometimes mitigating the precarity, and the role that civil society organizations play in implementing policies and helping workers navigate regulatory bureaucracies. My current book focuses on the role of immigration status in driving workers' experiences, and the specific ways that race and gender intersect with various forms of legal status. I'm the daughter of an Anglo father and a Mexican immigrant mother. And many of the themes that we discussed this summer were deeply personal to me. And we were privileged to be in conversation with 30 colleagues this summer who hail from a variety of disciplines, including art, architecture, Africology, design studies, geography, history, literatures, sociology, and many more.
0: In this episode, participants from the Cornell Migrations Summer Institute, Reagan Gillum and Isa Cosette Diaz sit down with Cornell University professor Derek Spires. They represented the Quilombo Maronage group, which also included Andre Nascimento, Christopher Roberts, Amanda Piñero, and Anna Ozaki.
2: Pennsylvania Press in 2019. The book traces the parallel development of early Black print culture and legal and cultural understandings of U.S. citizenship. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Spires, and can you share more with us about yourself and your research?
3: Thanks for having me, and thanks again for inviting me to this conversation. I feel blessed to be here. As you said in your introduction, uh, my first book was on how nineteenth century black activists thought about, wrote about, and used print culture to expand our understanding of citizenship. And one of the things I learned from them is that one, before the Fourteenth Amendment, black Americans, especially free African Americans, considered themselves citizens and were, um, depending on where they were, citizens by law. But we see the laws being changed to away rights and what they begin to do is one articulate the ways in which um, citizenship really is a story we tell about ourselves as a collective it's a story about um, who belongs and who doesn't who can belong and who can't belong it's a story that gets codified in law and often enforced through violence but it's also a story that um, seeps through our culture through our economics etc and one of the first things early Black writers do, whether in the United States or elsewhere, especially under conditions of enslavement, is to start telling stories about themselves, whether it's the classic slave narrative, or spiritual stories, or freedom stories that sort of give them an identity and a collective sense of self that goes beyond and isn't determined by enslavement. Um, Freedom's journal, first Black newspaper in the United States, began publication in 1827 so it says flat out, um, we need to tell our own stories. Too long have other folks told our story. And so at the heart of it, um, my work is centered around how Black writers, Black intellectuals, Black collectives told stories about themselves through print, newspapers, pamphlets, conventions, poetry, prose, et cetera. And I'm as interested in the how of it as I am in the what, and the two are often intertwined. And so I work on folks like Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, early Black feminist who wrote from the 1840s right up until the 20th century. Um, You would think of her today as a kind of multimedia mogul because she wrote newspapers, she wrote short stories, novels, poetry, speeches, essays, if she were around today, day, she would be on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, TED Talks, C-SPAN, multiple books, et cetera. She really was a media savvy person. And, um, and I find myself more and more returning to her and her work to think through both how Black folks imagine futures for themselves at moments where it would seem that it would be impossible to imagine a future. And then to think through the day, all the ways that especially Black feminist writers are using media to tell new, fresh, exciting stories about Black folk and Black life. So that's where I am. That's what I do.
4: You're doing such wonderful work collecting these stories, visiting these archives and bringing space to the print culture. And like you said, the different forms of the mediums as the stories are being told. And during the summer lab, we have been unmapping and imagining the future while also acknowledging the historical acts of documentation and erasure. And our first keynote speaker was Natalie Diaz, the 2021 Pulitzer Prize winner, who discussed how etymology is a map, right? Which helps me um, and also allows me to be kind of guided in how I see how stories are being told. And like you said, the many connections from your work in the 19th century to present day of Black feminist writers, right? And we want to know a little bit more about your findings with the storytelling and the various forms of print culture, and especially about citizenship um, with the notion of Black people acknowledging who they are and their journey. Can you talk more about your personal interpretations while reading
3: these texts? That's a great question. Um, I think one of the things I come back to how Black writers use form in ways that we would not necessarily recognize today. Um, so the 18th and 19th century, one of the more popular prose forms was the sketch. And it's it's wrapped up into multiple media. So I say sketch, you may think the visual drawing, the sort of rough outline that an artist might do in preparation for the finished work, or sketch as in a draft. Or sketches in a journal or a um, diary entry or sketch has resonances with the sciences um, and travel literature. And so you find, especially in the 1840s and 50s, a cohort of black writers writing using pseudonyms. In Frederick Douglass's paper, um, in the Anglo-African magazine, they used names like Communipaw and Ethiop and Fanny Homewood and Jane Rustic. And they wrote in this sketch genre and described themselves as doing crayonings and drawings and will say, we need a sort of, what we would think of today as a black aesthetic. Ethiopia will write a sketch, walking in the streets of Brooklyn and say, we need a space of black visual art. We need a black gallery because I'm tired of seeing little black girls walking down the street with white dolls. We need spaces where we can see Paintings and biopaintings of Toussaint Louverture, of Samuel Cornish, an early Black newspaper man. We need to see portraits of David Walker and others because that kind of visual and narrative culture is what creates a foundation for not just Black liberation. He's talking about politics, but he's also talking about something a little more um, mundane, like self esteem, like self image, like self care. Right? And so I spent a lot of time thinking about what Black writers in newspapers in particular are doing with forms like the sketch that we have today in the form of, say, sketch comedy show or set, you think, Saturday Night Live or Black Women's sketch comedy show, right? Um, but in the 19th century, it was a really powerful way of playing with ideas, of playing with visuality, of both assessing and critiquing the culture at large, but also intervening in it. The image the culture gives us is insufficient, it's paltry. Let's sketch out something else. And the other thing I'd say about what I learned with the sketch is that it's always provisional. Like it's written knowing that it's going to be revived, but it's also written knowing that it doesn't have to land at a particular destination. It's always sort of in the mode of becoming, of revising itself, of revisiting itself. And you throw on top of that the sense that these sketches were often sort of skip serialized. Um, so you'd get a sketch knowing that there was a kind of to be continued, that to be continued was a promise that the writer would return, but it was also a promise on the part of the newspaper that the newspaper will return, and it was a sort of contract with the readers. Like, we're all here together, and we're going to be back for the next installment to continue the conversation.
2: Thank you so much for that. And I'm, I'm, I was glad in your introduction when you mentioned Francis Watkins Harper, because I read in your research where Harper, who was this uh, Black feminist writer um, who you talked about, she has, she writes this story recounting the resistance of Zumbi and Palmares. And I was interested in this because um, she's writing this story in the 1850s in the United States, and she's writing the story about Palmares and Zumbi, which is in Brazil. And just to say a little bit about the Palmares quilombo, it was a maroon community of escaped slaves that existed throughout the 1600s in Brazil. And Zumbi was a leader of the community. He was captured and killed while fighting the Portuguese. And today, Zumbi lives on as the symbol of resistance. But as I was reading this, it was kind of blowing my mind because Harper's writing about this in the 1850s. And I wondered where might Black people at that time or where might Harper have heard of these historical events in Brazil? And how do you think about this story in relationship to the transnational circulation of Black stories?
3: that's a great question um i'm always interested in how someone gets a hold of a story even before they before i think about how they're revising it and the funny thing about zumbi that that story wasn't hidden he didn't have to go dig into some archive or happen upon the story it was decently circulated um when harper was growing up in the 1820s and 30s Maryland. It was widely circulated in the 1840s and 50s. And I think the first instance of the narrative I located is uh, 17th century um, history written in Portuguese. But the English speaking world first gets introduced to it in the early 1800s. Um, Robert Southey and Thomas Lindley both write histories and travel narratives of Brazil. And they're sort of doing a sort of place by place. History of important locations. And whenever someone in the 19th century would talk about Brazil and Palmares, they talk about the history of Zumbi dos Palmares. And they lay out the entire history of Black resistance to the Dutch and the Portuguese and the founding of Palmares and its success for almost 100 years and the epic struggle between the Dutch, the Portuguese, and the Quilombo and the eventual. Um, leap um, to escape um, on the part of Zumbi and some of his compatriots, or at least that's the way the narrative goes. And so by the 1830s, the Zumbi story had taken two really strong branches. One was, this is the revolutionary era, late 18th, early 19th century. This is an example of republicanism, and it is a condemnation of monarchy and empire. That's one branch. And the other branch was this highly successful um, Ilambo is an indictment of all the justifications of enslavement, because if these African-descended people could create and sustain a republic against all odds, you can't make the case that African-descended people should be enslaved. Um, Lydia Mariah Child takes up the story in 1833 in a collection of narratives called An Appeal in favor of that class of Americans called Africans. And important to note, Lydia Mariah Child is a white woman abolitionist. And I think that that text might have been Harper's first encounter because it would have come out as Harper was coming of age, and Harper's uncle, racer, William Watkins Senior, was deeply embedded in that culture. Um, all of which is to say Zumbi wasn't hidden, right? This narrative was getting reprinted in newspapers all over the place. Um, and so were narratives about Haiti, about Jamaica, about um, Nicaragua. Black activists are watching revolution and sort of Black-led politics happening in Nicaragua and writing about it. They're writing about Haiti and in constant conversation with leaders in Haiti. Um, John Rushworm, who co-founded Freedom's Journal, is actually born in Jamaica so we're not talking about really distant disparate communities here we're talking about pretty interconnected well-informed communities and you know i can go on about this but i think the central point is at least from my own vantage it seems like these stores would be hard to get a hold of because i didn't learn about zumbi in school but in the 19th century someone like harper who's fairly well educated um, pretty active intellectually would have encountered the story pretty on, pretty early on, alongside Haiti, Jamaica, um, Ipawawa, um and other narratives.
4: I love how you find the similarities and in, in the way that sometimes our stories are kind of hidden in plain sight because there's some way that they are connected by other stories that we've told or been translated. And thinking about the form of translation or how languages and narratives evolve with your study of print culture in the early United States, but also considering the global black narrative that is being told. What are your thoughts as media is being used through this digital culture to tell stories? Um, Have you noticed any similarities between early print culture to now um, modern storytelling? Maybe you can talk about the similarities and differences. And also maybe elaborate on your imaginations of what the future patterns of Black storytelling will be.
3: Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I mentioned earlier the writers writing in newspapers under pseudonyms in these sketches. And what I'm learning in Frederick Douglass's paper in Alien American and the Pacific Appeal and Christian Recorder There are people whose identities aren't getting hidden by the pseudonyms. They aren't trying to hide their identities under pseudonyms. They're writing regularly under pseudonyms. And when you read the columns from day to day, week to week, it looks a lot like Twitter. It looks a lot like social media. The pace is a little bit slower because it's print, um, but they're cracking jokes on each other, right? They're ragging on each other. They're um, following um, popular political events, but that kind of african American black centered slant on it that black centered read on events going on, right, but also full of gossip and so if you're in the know, you can pick up any random issue of Frederick Douglass's paper and hop right in if you're not in the know, it takes a little bit of time to get a sense of who's who because they're talking about stuff that might have happened five years ago or so. Or they're talking about stuff that might have happened behind closed doors, but everyone who's in the paper writing on the pseudonym knows what's what. Right. So that's the first thing that comes to mind. And I'm still trying to understand both how that's similar to something like Twitter and and also how it's different. The other thing that comes to mind is that even in the 1850s, 60s, 70s, um, you find in black print culture a global imagination. And, and it's not just the Black Atlantic imagination. So Douglas's paper, other newspapers, had circulation and correspondence in the UK. They had them in um, Haiti and Jamaica. They had them in Mexico and Canada. But a newspaper like The Pacific Appeal, edited by Philip A. Bell out of San Francisco, had correspondence in China and Japan. And they're talking about what's happening in Asia, and they're talking about what's happening on the West Coast with Asian immigrant friend building coalitions, even then. And it's definitely the case that the pace has sped and the access has increased. But some of the basic patterns are still there. They're still wrangling between a kind of self asserting would be Black elite and the sort of Black folk, and the Black folk saying just because you have degrees and this sort of Platform as opposed to 21st century of a blue tech mark doesn't mean that you speak for us and doesn't mean that you can talk down to us. There's even a kind of insurgent black vernacular culture that's constantly reminding would-be leaders that you know you might we we might ride with you, but we'll also hold you accountable. Find that in um, black print too. African American literary scholars would call this the changing same. There's a sense that there are Differences, historical, political, social, cultural, economic, technological differences. And at the same time, some of the patterns, some of the stylistic um, markers are there. Um, and you can see it in the way that the quote tweet works, right? And the way that someone will quote tweet with a bit of sarcasm or a bit of praise or a bit of side eye or whatever it is. In the 19th century, it's citation, a like direct citation, and then reprinting um, with commentary, et cetera. So, yeah, the changing same is the thing.
0: Thanks for listening to The World We Became, MapQuest 2350. The culmination of an experiment on the study of race and migration using speculative design and digital method.
1: We'd like to thank all of our participants from the 2021 Cartographies of Racial Justice Summer Institute at the Migrations Initiative of Cornell University with support from the Office of the Vice Provost of International Affairs, the Mario Ainaudi Center for International Studies, and the Mellon Foundation's Just Futures Initiative. You can learn more about the initiative at migrations.cornell.edu, where you can also find relevant links from this episode. Follow us at Global Cornell and hashtag CornellMigrations. Original music was created by Jesse Gambadi, and David Gonzalez produced each episode. Much of the podcast is produced at Cornell University on the traditional homelands of the Cayuga Nation, and we recognize the Cayuga Nation's sovereignty and indigenous peoples who have lived and continue to live on this land.